everyone. So glad you're back. For this discussion, sponsored by Hills, I'm joined by Dr. Dale McClintock for a case-based discussion. That's right, we mixed up our normal format for this one, and instead of kind of doing our more typical Q&A style, we really focused on cases and how to apply various dermatology principles. We touched on conditions like food allergies, environmental allergies, and atopy, and the real-life challenges that can come with treating these patients. And let me tell you, Dr. McClintock was great. Her medical insight was invaluable, but she did an excellent job of shedding light on how to deal with the practical challenges that present themselves when managing these patients. Dr. Dale McClintock graduated from the University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine in 2016 after eight years in dermatology research at Columbia University Medical Center. After receiving her veterinary medical degree, she completed a specialty internship in shelter medicine at the University of Missouri and a private practice dermatology specialty internship in Levittown, Pennsylvania. She recently completed her residency in veterinary dermatology at the University of Georgia Veterinary Teaching Hospital. She's most interested in feline dermatology, especially the management of feline atopic syndrome. Thank goodness, because we could definitely use some more options in treating those poor kitties. And besides veterinary dermatology, Dr. McClintock is passionate about shelter medicine as the proud owner of five, count them, five rescues. When she's not studying for her boards, which we were very fortunate she took a break to talk to us in the middle of studying for her boards, she enjoys taking her chihuahua on long bike rides, reading at home with her four cats, or solving puzzles and playing board games with friends. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into our discussion. I'm joined by Dr. Dale McClintock today. We're talking about dermatology. Dr. McClintock, thank you for joining me. Good to be with you. And we're taking a little bit different approach today rather than interview style, more do like case discussions. I will read a case presentation and then we'll kind of talk about some of the highlights, the challenges that that case might present and how to address those and move forward to treat these cats and dogs. <laughs> Got to get them all. Exactly. Exactly. So the first case is Wayne. Wayne is a seven month old male intact Great Dane. He has a history of three to four months of papular and pustular erosions in his inguinal area and moderate pruritus described as a four to five out of 10 on the itchy scale. His body condition score is four out of nine. No reported coughing, sneezing, vomiting, or diarrhea. He eats an all-kibble diet that is formulated to meet AFCO standards for a growing puppy. So I actually do have, I know we said not interview style, but I I had a question when I read this case. I I love the scale of one to 10. I usually go to the one to 10 scale with owners and I tell them, you know, a one is like a couple times a week and a 10 is they keep you up all night scratching. How do you ask people, how do you describe that scale of one to 10 and ask them to rate their pet? I usually give them a visual scale, um, something usually not even with zero to 10 listed on it, but just a a 10 centimeter scale and allow them to place a little hash mark, tick mark again about where they think it is. And then I usually, if I do give them numbers just to help them out, because sometimes that doesn't still process, I, I use a very similar scale to, I let them up to two is you know, normal dog itch, occasional scratching at the ears. He does the the full body shake in the morning and the evening, and that's it. And then 10 is exactly as you've described. Not only is this animal not able to enjoy normal dog activities, which puts you up higher, like five or six without scratching, but now he can't even eat or be distracted at all. And he's actually keeping the owners up at night with itching and scratching. So I let them first see a visual scale and then I assess it based on sort of the reports that they're giving me from the history. They're going it's a mid-level hash mark or something on the visual scale, but then they tell me the dog won't eat for scratching and going, okay, that's actually a little bit higher and I'll introduce the number system for them at that time. But I feel like numbers can be very um, ordinal and very ranking at times for owners. So they will say, well, I don't want to say he's a 10 out of 10. That seems overdramatic. Uh, so I usually let them use the visual scale. So there's no prejudgments on it and then adjust as necessary. 
I think that's a great idea, an approach I never even really thought about. That sounds good. One of the things we talked about is this is a seven-month-old Great Dane puppy. How does being a puppy kind of affect his the workup, the diagnostics, the treatment in this case? So the old dermatology conventional wisdom about food allergies particularly was very young or very old animals. I'm trying not to reproduce those biases in my own diagnostic pathway, but in this particular case, why his age matters so much and also, you know, brings into question the need or the use of a food trial in this case is you truly have an animal that we don't know his seasonality. He hasn't lived literally through two out of four possible seasons. And this problem is described as being present for half his life at this point, but you don't know that tomorrow he might start decreasing his itch. Maybe this dog does not need a food trial. However, This is a perfect time to try to do the food trial, intervene as soon as possible. You have complete control over what he's eating as a puppy, and he's already on a kibble diet and multiple diets are are kibble-based diets that are acceptable for food trials. So it is a good time to try to rule out food immediately for him. And then if he does start to miraculously improve, you could say, oh, through the steps we take with a food trial is just reintroducing his old food. Does he flare or reintroduces old food come November and there is no flare, then it was truly seasonal. And now we actually understand his presentation better and whether the food trial was necessary. Sometimes people will go back and go, oh, I guess we didn't have to do that, but better we should address it now with the potential that he has a food trial that ultimately doesn't manage his signs versus leaving him alone to be itchy and waiting for the next spring to come back when he might be worse. So it's definitely, he's still a good candidate for food trial. We will presume he is non-seasonal given that he's had a duration of four months or so of, of issues. I usually find owners are underreporting duration because they may have missed the initial onset. That's not unusual for a puppy to start being itchy this young. And of course, given that he's a growing puppy and every other management for allergic dermatitis environmentally induced is going to require systemic and topical interventions. If we could fix them with food, there's a real benefit to getting that known sooner rather than later for the owner's benefits. I've had a couple that have really responded to food and it's been like a dramatic response that I've seen from them. And just to echo what you're saying, the quicker we get that figured out and controlled, it's just such a huge difference for some of these pets. And in terms of cost, um, especially if you rule a food diet issue in as a possible cause of allergic pruritus, so you say you challenge the diet and he flares, the sooner you get to know that, the sooner you can talk to the owners about how do we want to sequentially challenge the proteins in his diet to see what exactly he's allergic to. You're talking about a seven-month-old puppy who, if he responds to a novel or hydrolyzed protein prescription diet for the purposes of elimination diet, trialing, he may not, especially as a great Dane, he may not be a good candidate to stay in that food for the rest of his life for the owner's um, financial benefit. So that's another way to talk to owners about it is I do need this expensive diet to get this diagnosis ruled in or ruled out. And if I rule it in, we want to know as soon as possible. We don't want to wait especially if there's a potential for seasonal exacerbation on a non-seasonal presentation, because this could be the time to really nail it down. As you've mentioned, this is a Great Dane puppy that we're dealing with. So we already have some dietary limitations. So you mentioned that there are kibble diets that are appropriate for a food trial. Absolutely. But what kind of things are we looking for when we're talking about a food trial in such a young puppy? And especially, you know, when it's a giant breed. When I presented this case, he's a four out of nine, which as a giant breed dog is actually perfectly ideal. You don't want a growing puppy to be too overweight, especially a giant breed but you do have to really carefully monitor his weight. And this might be a very good example. There are prescription diets labeled for growing puppies. They have been diet trialed specifically to show that growing puppies can adequately receive nutrients from those diets, not just formulated to meet the uh, American Association of Feed Control Officials or AFCO standards, like the diet he was previously eating. 
And you want to make sure that he's hitting certain benchmarks. That might mean intensely monitoring his weight, having the owner's buy a scale to have at home. He's a giant breed, so they may need a dog scale or they may have to commit to hauling their their hefty puppy in their arms and getting on a 12-inch scale of their own. But watching his weight is going to be incredibly important, making sure he's hitting good developmental benchmarks. But again, here's where a nutritionist might be really helpful because they can formulate a diet. In this case, he eats kibble, but if he were picky or he didn't like the kibble he was switched to, having someone make sure that his dietary needs are met. I think it's very important as a specialist or someone going into specialist training that we not silo ourselves off from our our colleagues who know more about individual pieces. I definitely consulted a nutritionist when I needed a novel protein diet for an animal and due to the dietary history, they couldn't have some other diets, but it was a growing kitten and I wasn't sure whether I could use certain things. And it was a completely wonderful collaboration to talk to someone who does food all day, every day in a very different way than I do. So definitely making sure that he is not going to have sort of growth issues. But in addition, he's coming in with a very moderate level of itch and he's very young, which means certain drugs are not labeled for use. I'm thinking particularly of Apoquel, which shouldn't be used in an animal under 12 months of age. You can certainly try things like Cytopoint. That's a very mild intervention. But if he were more severe and you were thinking about using um, oral systemic glucocorticoids, you'd have to be careful because you don't want to have any sort of impact on his growth. Certainly you could use them for a short time if really necessary, but he is going to be a dog that, again, the benefits of figuring out food sooner rather than later is you have to manage him for his itch during the food trial, even if he is ultimately food allergic. If you leave him stuck with what sounds like papular pustular erosions could be a pyoderma, he's going to remain itchy for the pyoderma and the owners may not see the benefit of the food trial, meaning you could miss a diagnosis of food allergy. And it's very important to know what works for him in case food allergy is ultimately ruled out because he will still be at the end of an eight-week food trial. He'll still be some months away from safe use of Apoquel even. Uh, So this is where you want to make sure you're utilizing your topical therapies. Definitely get them used to that. That's another intervention. While you're doing the food trial, you have a seven-month puppy. Hopefully they are taking him to puppy classes as a Great Dane if he's misbehaving. It's going to be very hard to manage this kid for life. And that's probably the most important thing is to talk to these owners is you've just engaged on this beautiful journey with your brand new puppy. I have news for you. He's a brand new puppy whose allergies are never going away. The sooner he gets used to hopping in the tub to get some paces bathed, rinsed, his feet touched, his ears cleaned, the better you'll do. Even if he's food allergic, you know, he can have flares, he can have accidental ingestion of a hot dog later in his life that cause a problem. He needs to be good. He needs to be good as a great date in general, but he needs to be good for them to do this. So definitely consider working with a nutritionist. If you guys have one available or you can consult with one, they're very good at looking through records and offering consultations uh, without seeing patients directly, or at least some of the ones I have interacted with, or you can rely on commercial prescription diets that are actually formulated for puppies, just making sure that you keep track of weight and we should not see loss of muscle or fat significantly in this animal. I love that reminder about, you know, really having a team approach here between, um, you know, this is a dermatology issue, but talking to our colleagues in nutrition, especially, you know, with some of these widely available, high quality foods. I've had great luck just picking up the phone and talking to somebody. And I, I totally agree. They're just a wealth of information. And I walk, I I always walk away from that phone call going, well, that was way easier than I thought it was going to be. Like, here's my list of exactly what to do. And I don't have to put tons and tons of brain power behind it anymore. Definitely. So the big takeaways, it sounds like from this case is that, you know, this is a young puppy. So our medication options are limited due to age, but then also due to breed and breed will limit our diet options as well. So just carefully approaching that and the benefits of 
pursuing a food trial early. Most definitely. All these things will be useful in older patients too, when you have more options. But this is a case that I think increasingly we are seeing very young animals with allergies being prepared for the limited option is always the best way to go forward. I'm going to plug my ears when you say we're seeing more itchy puppies. <laughs> Dermatology cases are hard enough as they are. Not when, Oops. Not when our <laughs> options are limited, <laughs> then they're even harder. All right. Case number two, our next case is Brooks. Brooks is a three-year-old spayed female domestic short hair with a two-year history of chronic diarrhea and non-seasonal pruritus. Non-seasonal pruritus has manifested as head and neck excoriation and is six to seven out of 10 itchy. She's already been evaluated by a board certified veterinary internist and is being managed for presumptive intestinal dysbiosis with VisBiome vet supplements and B12 injections. These have improved, but have not resolved the diarrhea. Brooks has received Depomedrol injections in the past. They did successfully manage the allergic itch, but there was an episode of acute onset congestive heart failure within 24 hours following the last injection, which was over six months ago. So the owners have not repeated the injection since rightfully so, because that's pretty scary when that happens following a Depomedrol injection. Yeah. So this is a case more or less that I pulled right from my experience in residency. The animal had a history of signs that could be compatible with food allergy, but obviously, again, speaking of working with our colleagues, you know, their opinion is they're looking at it from the gut centric thing and they referred it for the skin, but I saw more that these two could potentially be related. And so the trick here is you have, again, an animal that's very common presentation, head and neck paritis is one of four cardinal presentations of cats with hypersensitivity dermatitis. You also see self-induced alopecia and you see miliary dermatitis and eosinophilic granuloma complex. And again, speaking to things like our myths about food allergy, food allergy, head and rear ends, they used to call it ears and rears. That was something a lot of people was sure has got to be a food allergy, but that's not a guarantee just to understand that all hypersensitivities can have overlapping presentations. So this is actually something that might be very common. The animal might be being seen for diarrhea, which initially is a much bigger problem, especially if there's incontinence out of the litter box. It still has this other problem that although the diarrhea is resolved with the internal medicine interventions, it's otherwise not controlling head and neck paritis. And then you have this history of congestive heart failure. Congestive heart failure following Depomedrol injection is unfortunately a very big risk with these repositol sort of injections, although fortunately not very common. So you have them as being, again, you're speaking of limitations with medications like we have with a Great Dane puppy. Cats are in a class way below dogs when it comes to interventions available. So steroids are a great intervention, but you're going to have some hesitancy here. It's important to understand that just because we're improving with a presumed intestinal dysbiosis diagnosis, the fact that we're improving, but we're not really good is still food allergy should be sort of on your radar. So when you intervene with your colleagues, don't forget, you don't want to question what they're doing, but look to see how they've been managing a condition and whether there's overlap with a dermatology condition. And there's, there's sort of room for you to intervene. What about this supplement that they were using, the VisBiome Vet? So VisBiome Vet is a court where I did my residency, very popular supplement. So probiotic supplement available for dogs and cats. The biggest trick for me two things. One is the capsule that it comes in. And this is a fair concern to address with any capsular medications, including something like cyclosporin, which comes in a capsule. Capsules derived from agar are commonly derived from hoofstock animals. So you're, there's a fair question to ask, is there going to be a significant contamination of protein? So if I continue to give a capsule, even if it was just filled there to an animal that might be food allergic, is this something that might fool me into thinking my diet trial was not successful? The other thing is in particular, VisBiome Vet has a uh, dairy component. And so dairy is definitely something that we worry about with food allergies. We do see milk allergies in some animals. So 
looking to see, I don't want to, again, I'm not questioning the internist diagnosis. They've obviously made improvement with the animal, but I don't want to completely throw out what they're doing while not letting what they're doing interfere with what I need to do, which is to initiate an at least eight week elimination diet trial. So a couple of different options. We can discontinue the supplement and say, I understand with what I'm doing, I might make the diarrhea worse. Are you willing to go with me on that journey? Just explaining to the owners my thought process vis-a-vis -vis the milk and, and capsule components. You could try to find a powder, Visbiome Vet does come in just powder packets, not capsules, a little bit messier for owners potentially to apply, but would at least eliminate that one source. And then branching outside of his biome vet, trying something that is a vegan product, again, ideally not in a capsule. So those are sort of the three options is keep what you have, eliminate the capsule, but still not ideal. Keep what you want, which is a probiotic administration, but make it vegan to hopefully reduce it. But those are still introducing contaminants potentially to the diet. Again, I don't know how those products are made. I haven't had a PCR test to confirm what proteins are or not available or contaminating potentially. This is a big problem with doing like over-the-counter diets as food trials or eliminating it. And ultimately in this case, we did ask the owners, will you go with us? I know you've just gained the diarrhea under control, but can we potentially take out this supplement? Happily for this animal, the B12 injections can continue and the loss of supplement did not cause recrudescence of diarrhea. In fact, putting this animal within two weeks on a novel protein prescription diet, the diarrhea was gone. So I, again, not questioning my colleague necessarily, but it seemed like this might be a food responsive gastroenteritis enteropathy, more so food allergy wise. In this particular case, although diarrhea was very responsive to food change, the head and neck paritis did not significantly change. So this still left us with the conundrum of how do we medicate the cat, but at least we had finally tackled the ears and ears situation, at least the rear part. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And sorry, I hope I didn't throw you off halfway through with that face I made. I had, I had no idea about the capsules. Like that was completely new information. I went, wait, the capsule can make things worse here. It's one of those things too, with diet trials. And I, I have to overcome a lot of owner hesitancy because they will have, by the time they see me tried with their referred vets and they've done a very good job. But for me, before I commit to a lifetime of immunosuppression or injections of immunotherapy, there's a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of potential side effects, interventions. It's really worth it to me for two months to try to get it right. And so I will not force a food trial if they've done 95% the right way. But when they tell me it's been done. Oh no, it was very strict, very strict, very strict, but we certainly gave our heartworm medication that's flavored every month. And maybe on the weekends, we gave a piece of bacon that, you know, it's a very slippery slope and I prefer to be absolutist about it because best that I have the answer for you one way or another in two months, if it turns out again, they were not responsive to the diet. So be it. But in this case, this is a very good example of maybe the head and neck paritis I couldn't fix, but we happened to resolve gastroenteropathy that was fairly severe and of long duration. So they were very happy with that. Now they still have to manage Brooks, but essentially they can minimize what they need to do for the other things and redirect their focus to her dermatology issues. It can be a long two months, or in this case, maybe it was much easier for them since the diarrhea resolved. It can be a long two months, but in the grand scheme of things can yeah. really pay off and got to keep a focus on the long game for sure. Absolutely. Especially when it comes to dermatology. One of the things we talked about is medication. Uh, since injectable steroids, the owners are gun shy of repeating that probably veterinarians are as well. Um, cause that's a scary thing. So what kind of options do we have for this kitty as far as treating the head and neck paritis? Well, unfortunately, as I alluded to, if dogs are behind human medicine, depending on your, your preference between 10 to 20 years, cats are further behind. Uh, our, our veterinary dermatology journal recently had a whole issue dedicated to cats, which was fantastic. But in evaluating in one study, evaluating the therapies for allergic hypersensitivity disorders in cats, they really only had good quality of evidence for two drug classes, which was cyclosporin and glucocorticoids. 
Now, this is a point where you can talk to the owner and you can talk to them about glucocorticoids may not be completely off the table. Topical could be an option if this animal's lesions are minimal. If it's extensive, they've got what we call the hamburger head. They've really scratched themselves to pieces that may not be effective. And you may need to utilize a cone to really help keep them out of it. That's one way without any drugs, you can keep them away from their head and the worst damage they do. But you have to let them know that aside from glucocorticoids, our evidence is kind of mixed on some of the other things. And cyclosporin, which may be a very good option, is not going to work overnight. Not certainly the way even the diet trial that worked within two weeks, like that is considered quite fast. Uh, that won't, cyclosporin, I wouldn't turn around expecting the majority of animals to respond to in that same time frame. So we just have to have a conversation about do we want to try oral steroids, for example, where in, if there is a problem such as congestive heart failure, you can at least cease the administration so that you don't have an unknown duration of effect, because that's a big problem with all injectable medications. If there is a side effect from that, you can't withdraw the medication. You have to rely on its half-life in the body and elimination curves. So you could try oral steroids in another cat that I had that was uh, 12 years old and it had a heart congestive heart failure. I was actually able to manage her with oral steroids without reintroducing any signs of cardiac disease. Certainly if you're dealing with an animal with cardiac disease and you want to initiate glucocorticoid therapy, again, definitely need to keep track of your cardiac parameters. And this may be a good time to work in concert with a veterinary cardiologist. I know a few of them love cats, would totally be happy to help manage that. Or just give the owners sort of that option to say, you know, yes or no. And if they say no, explain that from there, your options for immediate relief are very limited. There's one paper suggesting uh, Serenia might be helpful at reducing pruritus but it's only one paper and very few animals. We could use Apoquel. There's been several studies in cats showing that it may not be inferior to things like methylprednisolone. However, the diagnostics and sort of monitoring for that need to be done. I would definitely recommend blood work before, blood work within a few weeks of initiating therapy. And you have to let the owners know it seems most efficacious being given twice a day, which is a pill twice a day. And they could consider crushing it and risk, you know, all the sort of things we think of once you start modifying medications, how do we know that it's getting absorbed? This is off-label. It is not for cats in the first place. So while it may work and work quite rapidly in cats, it is not something that we know beyond about 30 days in the most recent publications, how it may potentially affect cats. Like if this is, you're going to be your answer for life. We need to know and need to be monitored carefully. And then you have cyclosporin, which we have great evidence that it works in these animals, but won't work overnight. So you may need to talk to them about, can I use a little bit of steroid, a cone and start cyclosporin ASNAP for your animal? So polypharmacy is probably your best way to go. Or we can try something like Serenia and Apoquel that'll work pretty fast, but we don't have the best sort of evidence on one and, and we don't know what the long-term side effects are of another. Definitely something that we want to consider is can we convince this owner to use a little bit of oral steroid or not first before going into these other options? And lastly, it's a very popular thing that I see before these animals come in, which are oral antihistamines, probably not going to be something that will do very much, but if you wanted to add on to a protocol. It's something they want to try. We can, we just don't have any really good evidence that that's going to make the difference. And for me, when I'm already resorting to polypharmacy on top of a food trial, I prefer to have them do something that I think will be effective rather than something that's just better than say nothing. But that's, that's where I would sort of leave it. So yes, no on the steroids orally, still a possibility. Got to watch out for very important things and educate them about what signs to look for. If they've had an animal with congestive heart failure, they probably are aware, but just repeating what to look for in terms of things like respiratory distress and panting, and also stressing that they need to be sort of in touch or following up with the other options, just laying out their benefits and their detriments essentially for these owners. So our third case is Sparky. Sparky is a four and a half year old male neutered mixed breed dog living in a home with two other dogs and one cat, none of which have skin disease. 
And Sparky has a three-year history of non-seasonal paritis with seasonal exacerbation in the spring and summer, primarily May to September. The seasonal exacerbation manifests as erythema in the axilla inguinal region and interdigitally, paw licking, bilateral otitis externa, and recurrent pyoderma. Sparky has been previously diagnosed with juvenile onset generalized demoticosis and has been managed for this condition using NexGuard with attempts to stop NexGuard resulting in relapse. Not a few things going on. (laughs) That's a mess. Goodness gracious. Like generalized demodex and that relapses when you stop NexGuard, that's just bad luck right there. It's a problem. There's lots of dogs with demodicosis that definitely cannot be managed off of medications. Uh, that seems to be pretty well established. And that is his dermatology disease before and above having allergies. So again, like our last case, you don't want to make something worse for what you need to do, but it's important to know that NexGuard does have a flavor. It's hydrolyzed, but it does have a flavor. And so, you know, moving on to what you need to do there, do no harm, but you have to make this situation a little bit better. I'm, I'm learning all these things that I'm going you know, like, like itchy puppies. And now I, I don't think I've ever knock on wood, seen a co- a case of generalized demodex that, that doesn't resolve unless they're on routine preventatives. Um, and they stay on some sort of preventative regimen. Yeah. It's unfortunate. It does happen in my residency. There were two cases. One was a very young puppy, one a very old. So certainly you want to undress any underlying diseases that might predispose it, but there are cases where you don't find them and they just remain on uh, medications to manage it. NexGuard as an isoxazoline is a great option. It seems for demodex mites. And if you want to keep this animal managed, but still pull off a food trial, you're going to have to find an isoxazoline that works better for them because you don't want to change. Perhaps this animal would respond to oral ivermectin or things like amitraz dips like we've done in the past, but Really, this animal has a complicated situation, multi-animal household, previous diagnosis, seasonal and non-seasonal itch issues. You want to make it as easy as possible. You're about to wreck these people's whole career with what you need to do for this animal. You got to make sure you keep something steady for them in some way, shape or form. And while you certainly could use something like an oral ivermectin dosing has been done in the past or amitraz, you're going to have a lot going on. And I don't know that the amitraz dip on broken skin is a very good idea. So we're going to try to talk to them about how we manage some of the other stuff. So, yeah, yeah. I feel like that could really go South quickly. If we started to try to dip, dip them with broken skin and get a little extra absorption there. Definitely not a good idea. Um, There's a few other things sticking out from this case, which is you have a pyoderma, which is recurrent, probably suggestive of unmanaged allergies, but you definitely want to make sure you don't see any other issues. Sometimes you can see pyodermas associated with demodex as well. So maybe the demodicosis is not actually well controlled with NexGuard. It is totally possible. So you want to make sure this animal gets a good scraping while you're in, in the room and, and making sure that he's not got some relapsing disease there. The other thing that's super important to me is these animals with chronic change. So he's had history of bilateral otitis externa. You really need to do a thorough ear exam of this animal and explain to the owner that we we have this uh, acronym that we call PSPP. So it's predisposing, perpetuating primary secondary factors could there be chronic change in this animal? He doesn't have pendulous ears, so he doesn't have the predisposing factor. He has, uh, we think, allergic dermatitis, so that's a, a primary factor. Otitis externa, meaning infection, is a secondary factor. But for me, the real challenge is the perpetuating factors, chronic change to the ear, tissue hyperplasia, or God forbid, um, calcification of the ear canal can be really challenging. You could wave a magic wand over the dog, make sure he's food allergic and fix him. And as far as the rest of his skin goes, but the ears might be something that will forever require addressing just like the demodicosis. So setting very reasonable expectations up front is going to be super important for your clients here. Cause even if you get a good result with a food trial, you need to make sure they understand that some perpetuation of problems could exist because it wasn't addressed earlier. So this guy is a good way to sort of come around to thinking about our our seven month old case, which is if he's not managed early, he turns into Sparky here. 
So that's all the things to sort of keep in the back of your mind before you even get to the food trial part. (laughs) Absolutely. And that's something I've definitely seen with the chronic change resulting in just, I mean, just becomes a chronic management issue, trying to keep, keep the dog comfortable and keep things as under control as possible. Right. So with this animal, he lives with other animals, including dogs and cats, very common, uh, sort of presentation owners, very rarely, even with dogs that require this much effort, do I see people giving up on the other animals in the house? He's got a very common presentation that I see, which is we usually do a history when they say they're itchy. The most important question is when and how much. And we asked, we talked about the itchy scale. He's pretty itchy, but he also has this issue where May to September, he's worse. And so the fair question that I get from some owners is, well, I know he's worse in May to September for sure. I trust them, not taking them at their word. Then he must have environmental allergies. And the truth is, unless they're feeding him something very different, they go from, you know, Boston to Chile over a six month period and they're feeding something completely different, it, it is likely to have an environmental component. But there is still a benefit to rule out the non seasonal piece, a contribution of food allergy, because we think of allergies as having additive effects. There is a limit to the number of allergies you have before you start to show signs. And if you can address some of the hypersensitivities with diet, perhaps he will still be a miserable dog from May to September. But if you could buy them six months of much less miserable dog or even much less miserable dog in those high peak season months, it's all going to be helpful. And anything you don't address with food or ultimately cannot rule require medication. So it's usually pretty easy to talk to owners about a food trial might still help him from October to April. It may help reduce May to September misery, and it may reduce the amount of medications that he ultimately needs, which helps in terms of compliance, again, with three other animals in the house, making sure you keep him managed. It's going to be tricky. With three other animals in the house, you have to talk to them about very honestly, how are you going to make sure that when you, whatever diet you guys resolve to try for the food trial, that you make sure he doesn't get set up for failure The easiest way is usually to feed all the animals the diet. It's obviously not going to be something that you cannot feed a dog diet to a cat long-term. It is going to be much more expensive to put three dogs on a medical diet than one dog. So you have to sort of be a little bit tough with some of your owners and say, it's going to be expensive or it's going to be labor intensive. So this dog has to eat by himself and the other dog's bowls, they got to come up before he gets exposed to them. So usually feeding the animal by himself would be a good option. The cat, happily, depending on how much your tolerance for cats on counters is, you can feed the cat above ground where this animal can't reach, making sure, of course, that your mixed breed dog isn't partially an Irish wolfhound and you know, <laughs> out of his reach is at least above the refrigerator. But that's something that, you know, you have to talk to them about. Uh, Certainly the last piece I would just talk to them about is if you do not want to branch outside of isoxazolines, there are great options. At the start of the food trial, you could go ahead and give him a Brevecto. Orally will last him 12 weeks. You'll be into the food trial before worrying about, again, a hydrolyzed but potentially flavored uh, medication causing problems. Or you could try topical Brevecto that is available for dogs. So that's really good. Um, and make sure that you don't lose control of his demeticosis. And last but not least, keeping again in mind this seasonal exacerbation, it would be really silly to start a food trial in April that you hope to evaluate in June because you know the dog is going to be worse in June. And understanding how much less worse you are in June is a lot harder than are you mostly normal in November? So it just sort of depends. And again, this is all about communication. Talk to your owner. They come in 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 April and they're like, I know he's about to hit his worst season. That's why I'm here. I need help. Absolutely intervene with medications, but talk to them about the diet trial. Probably it would be a good time to get it started and then just let them know he may need to be on it through the, the busy season's end. Or if you wish, you may you know, give it a pause, say, let's pick this up maybe in August. So that by the time we get to October, it's only been two months. That is a financial and also 
uh, effort question for your owner again with three other animals. Can they keep this up for seven months? Maybe not, but it is worth talking to them about if you are successful in managing some of his paredes with the food, it will have to be something that they have to be good at in future. So there's never a wrong time to start a diet trial here. I am a little bit more of a fan of having them eat the food for longer just to see how they look in multiple seasons on the food. If there's a seasonal exacerbation, it's a lot harder to justify that on terms of cost and also wrangling three other animals. And also if their quote unquote busy or heavy allergy season is longer than not. So, you know, here's a six month example, but let's say that they are only ever quiet December, January, February. How do you make that argument to them that they need to start a food trial in April? It's, it's hard. And, you know, the best success you're going to have is one that you have with owner buy-in. So my takeaway from this would be do a food trial. Absolutely. You might be able to change this animal's whole world. Potentially you reduce the allergen so well that he has no flare in May to September because the, the food allergy was so aggravating, but just make sure you keep that summer schedule in mind when you decide when you're going to test this animal. And I'm hearing a theme come up in all of this, maybe one that was, you know, kind of a different from the original theme intended in this podcast. And that's really that, you know, dermatology, like so many other things is really a team sport. We're talking about working in teams with, you know, of course our dermatologists and, um, nutritionists, we talked about cardiologists, general practitioners, but also working in conjunction with the owner and figuring out what is going to work and be sustainable for them and really making sure that they're a part of the team and we have good owner buy-in. Yeah, this is a common theme of, of dermatology. Aside from the juvenile onset demeticosis or the odd case that comes in with fleas that I see, I don't cure or fix anything. I manage things. And that is what's really important is that when I talk to owners about allergies, they think of things like allergic rhinitis in humans and not atopic dermatitis in humans. Knowing people with atopic dermatitis, they know the score. They know that my skin is not normal. My exposure is never going to be minimal. Like there's no way to manage the environment. I have to manage me. And I sort of phrase it that way. But we know veterinary compliance is poor relative to human medicine, which has some poor compliance depending on the severity of the intervention and the side effects, none of which we're immune to as veterinarians. We have to have owner buy-in or the compliance will be worse. And you have to set reasonable expectations based on your knowledge. So again, demeticosis is not something that resolves immediately either. Some, some dogs do get very quick relief, especially with the nice new class of isoxazolines, but there are dogs that might need three or four months to be resolved. And they can be very frustrated very quickly if they were sort of promised a miracle cure. So first and foremost, with all these cases, the conversation is your dog is allergic for life. And our goal is to manage that, reverse what chronic change we can, but mostly figure out how do we induce remission of the lesions and then transfer them to more of a maintenance phase. And as long as we can sort of communicate that, we do get better owner buy-in. It's much better. And I find a lot of the people who are frustrated with their RDVMs didn't understand that from their veterinarian. I don't blame the vets. I'm sure the conversation was had, but you have this misconception about like allergic rhinitis and why don't antihistamines work for a disease that's primarily an inflammatory hypersensitivity that doesn't respond to those things. You really need to set up their expectations in a reasonable direction to get the most buy-in and you'll get nowhere by saying, I'm the boss, take this pill. <laughs> so, it, I mean, I, when I go to the doctor, I just take whatever they tell me, but I know, I um, saying, why do our human medicine colleagues get away with that? I, I, I don't know. I'm super <laughs> compliant. My, yeah. my sister is my dentist and she'll tell you that. Um, but <laughs> You know, with animals, it's different. They can't communicate with us. They can be difficult to medicate. They don't understand the benefits of things that are very labor intensive, like bathing and ear cleaning. So you have to communicate what's the benefit to that. And I find that most people have not a pressure point, but a decision point where you can reach them. So knowing their goals ahead of time is also really important. So one thing that we would ask our students in my residency to ask owners is what is your goal for today? I know your dog has otitis externa. I know your cat has head and neck paritis. 
what's the thing that you need managed? I am going to care about all those things and probably bully you about some of them more than you need or you think you need. But if your dog leaves without a plan for X, you'll be upset with me is really important for me to know. So taking it not just from top down from doctor to, to client, but taking it back the other way is really important. So you'll have people come in and it's like, oh, I think it's just this dang ear infection. I can't get it resolved. And I look at their animal and I go, it is an ear infection. He also has pododermatitis and, you know, he's got some rashes in the inguinal area like this. We have to think about the whole picture. And then I think your ear problem will get better. Yay. Uh, the other thing is, is that you make sure that they are prioritized in that way. You get better compliance because they feel not just that what they want has been addressed, but that they have been heard, that they are coming to, by the time they come to a specialist, they have definitely tried and their RDVMs have given it the whole, the whole go. And they send it to us to make sure, you know, second opinion is mostly like, is there something we're missing or not? And usually not, usually it's, I need to tighten up your food trial, but it's really important that you have these conversations and be amenable to being told you're wrong. I asked in the cat case, I asked the the internist who had prescribed the VisBiome, can I use this vegan product? And I got a about 10 minute discussion about why they didn't like the vegan product I was considering. And when they know more than I do, I said, okay, you don't like it. So rather than introduce that as a new and complicating thing, that's why we ultimately went by eliminating the probiotic and taking the risk of causing problems which they also didn't love, but we came to a sort of an understanding about. So, you know, it's, it's the same way. It's like, I hear that this is what's important to you. I want to make sure I address it, but what's necessary is kind of come from me. And I feel that we do a lot better. And some of that is our population selection. If you're coming to a specialist, you've bought in just a little bit more to, I need to do this advanced work. So I understand my population is biased, but yeah, I don't think you get anything done if you don't communicate, not talk at, but talk with people. Definitely. I could not agree more. That's something that I, I think is so important. And in a lot of areas, I could absolutely get on board with the population bias, but in this one, I don't think so. I think it's very similar um, with the population that I see some of whom are not willing to go see a specialist. Uh, and it's, it's the same th sort of talk of, you know, what's important to you and what good can I accomplish for you and your pet, um, and have you on board so that we're working together to, to just improve everybody's quality of life. So that one, I don't know if there's population bias there. I think that's kind of across the board to really work as a team and focus on that. Absolutely. And if I have one thing that has been very hard learned on my end, because I get very frustrated sometimes, you know, I'm human, like, like you're not us. doing what I asked you to do, yeah. of course. Um, and we know that again, compliance falls off the less often that you see a patient and we're all busy. So it's sometimes not possible to get them in owners delay and they, they miss appointments and such. What's really important is that you don't, I mean, I've got a very, I've got no poker face whatsoever. It's very hard for me to hide when I'm disappointed. And I've seen, I've had owners be like, oh, we have not been cleaning the ear and applying oh, yeah. the steroid. What's really important for me is like to not put a judgment on that and to say, thank you for telling me that because I'm seeing there's a problem. I sent you home with a cleaner and some topical steroids for an ear that nothing else will manage. And the ear looks unmanaged. The alternative is my management protocol stinks. And so you telling me the compliance might not be uh, well done, it actually helps me understand, do I need to switch up everything we're doing or can we try what we were supposed to be doing and see if it does in fact get better? And I have a lot of owners who come in kind of sheepish and afraid I'm going to like yell at them. But I mean, first of all, I don't yell at, at <laughs> not, I'm not, not. <laughs> not how my mother raised me, but also it doesn't help. And if you empower them and you say like, Hey, I think you have the tools already. So I don't need to sell you extra stuff, which they love to hear. And I don't need to punish you for doing blank. And sometimes they'll just tell on themselves, Oh yeah, we were mixing in bread with the food, the diet, or he got into this. Do you think I need to start from the beginning? You can have a really rewarding conversation where everyone is less frustrated at the end. So I think it's really good to say it's okay. 
okay when they're not compliant, as long as they're honest about it. And you just work on it. You say, okay, we're not going to do that again, please. And see how we go. Most of them are kind of so ashamed is not the right word. Embarrassed, right? They, they slipped up and they will redouble efforts. And when that happens, you get really rewarding interactions for sure. And I agree with you. It's kind of a relief when you feel like you have this you know, pretty solid plan and it's just not working at all. And you're like, oh gosh, is the plan not working? But I'm chuckling because I'm thinking of, of two different cases and they were phone calls I got and they said, my pets, thank goodness it was on the phone because I'm the same as you, no poker face at all. <laughs> and um, they called the hospital and they said, my pet isn't getting better. Is there anything else I can do? And I think one of the questions was, you know, how much of the medication do you have left? And they were like, also the medication, I'm not giving it. <laughs> okay. Well, plan a let's give the medication. This might be an easy fix. And it, it, um, it is a relief when you're like, okay, all right. It's not that my plan was terrible. It's just that we're not following the plan. I mean, I'm not above a little casual bribery or threatening. Like, you know, if you don't do the ear meds or it's really not amenable, I think we should consider, for example, surgical intervention right. or a deep ear flush with me, which is not again, not to start to think everything from a financial end, but it's not cheap. It's not exactly a risk-free procedure. And most people are averse to it. I love a good Tika. I think the changes I can see in the chronic ears that have no other hope of management, which is the way I hope the third case won't end up, but I don't want to do any surgery. I don't have to do. And I'll be honest, I've worked with some fantastic surgeons who you see this animal can't open its jaw. It hurts so much the ear the morning. And then by the evening they've had surgery, they've had surgery and they're feeling better. So I don't try to scare people with surgery. I just let them know if at some point we have to do the things we do, or we have to do something else. And the something else in dermatology at a point becomes quite invasive. And that's usually something where you can chat with them. So again, working with them, trying not to bring on big threats right away. A lot of cases I see are coming in because they think they need surgery. And it turns out we can do something. And that's, that's usually what people prefer to do. So, you know, it, it's definitely one of those things like, and how much meds do you have? Oh, the whole bottle. Okay. Oh, the whole thing. Yeah, those. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh, when did you start the trial? Oh, we didn't, we were on vacation. Okay. Well, that's still the recommendation. Let's start there and then see where we come back around to it. And I, again, I feel like most of my owners tell on themselves, they also are like, yeah, I didn't do the thing. Oops. It's okay. <laughs> I would agree. It's okay. They're usually pretty good at admitting it. <laughs> I mean, if they're coming in because they care about the animals not doing well, I think those two Venn, that Venn diagram is a circle. So. Right. Right. I agree. I agree. Well, I think this has been a great episode full of tons of really good pointers. And then, you know, we kind of went off on this tangent at the end about teamwork and owner compliance and things like that, which I've loved that discussion. Um, I like your thoughts about, you know, not above some gentle bribery or threatening with more invasive procedures, aggressive communication skills sometimes when, when appropriate, when appropriate. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Dr. McClintock, thank you so much for your time today. And thanks for joining me. All the helpful tips. It's been great. It's wonderful chatting with you. Hopefully people get something they can figure out that helps them plan their next case, their next food trial. Please do food trials. They're great. They're so useful and they keep animals out of the dermatologist's office. So I can see weirder things, which is always my favorite. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but I had a great time discussing these cases and learned a lot. So a huge thank you to Dr. McClintock for your excellent insight. And thanks to Hills for sponsoring this talk. For more episodes like this, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day. Mm -hmm.